Maybe. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Are y'all doing all right? Excited about the Christmas season? Anybody? Is anybody, this is your time of year. You just love it. I thought I'd get a hand from Kara. Yeah. Well, this is Kara and my time of year too. I have to admit this morning, I was excited about the opportunity to get to preach, to get to share with you this morning. I love the opportunity to do it. So I'm thankful and I had the opportunity and the chance. It was kind of a stressful morning leaving the house. We, I realized when I woke up that our iron is completely non-working, doesn't do anything. So Kara and I were crowded in our bathroom of our little tiny apartment with her hair straightener, trying to get my shirt as ironed as possible. So if my shirt is wrinkled, please offer a little grace. But we're excited that we have the chance to be here. We're excited that we have the chance to dive into what this Christmas season is all about. This morning I was tasked with talking about Christmas and waiting through the lens of love. And so we'll get there soon. But first, I want to show you, if Brad could help me out, show you a picture of how much we love Christmas. This is our house every year for Christmas. I'm just kidding. If you've watched the movie Christmas Vacation, that's Clark Griswold's house. But we love this time of year. We love the lights. We love the decorations, the Christmas music, the sweaters, all of it. We love it so much that every year, Kara and I celebrate Christmas twice. We celebrate it, braid it. Normally, December 25th, like you're supposed to. We also celebrate half Christmas in June. And this is, I got some pictures, a picture of this is the first time we celebrated half Christmas together. So we moved to Oklahoma right after we, or moved to Oklahoma. We moved to Texas right after we got married to both start graduate school. And so the Christmas season has always been crazy. I was working, we were both in school, Kara was working, and we would travel back and forth all the way through the Christmas season, and we never had the opportunity to really settle down and focus on what the season was all about. And so we decided that we're going to, in the middle of June, we're going to focus on just celebrating half Christmas. We buy each other a super practical gift. We eat on red and green plates, we eat a red and green meal, and we celebrate Christ on that time in June 25th. And um, it's something that's become really special, something that we love and something that we cherish. But every year, I feel like I'm met with this constant struggle. A constant struggle to remember why we celebrate this season, why we celebrate Christmas each year. And you would think that working in a church, that would be a pretty easy thing to keep at bay, right? We're constantly... As a church staff and as a church, we're constantly looking to Scripture and looking to Christ to be our guide through this season, this time of waiting. But I think our culture is asking us to do something different. The truth is that our cultural reality is that we're constantly being encouraged to take place in the materialism of Christmas that's at the very center. And I think nothing makes that more evident than working in retail. So one more quick story about right after Kara and I got married. While I was in seminary, I worked at a bicycle shop and outdoor store. So I worked in retail for a long period of time. We sold bikes, sold big puffy jackets and camping gear. Um, It was a lot of fun in the holiday season. But every year when I would come back from Thanksgiving, I would always be met with this. This sound, Brad, if you could just throw it up. I walk into the store... And I'm just met with Mariah Carey. And I just hear Christmas music over and over again. And I think through that time, I just kind of became callous to realizing what the true story of Christmas is all about. All of that might seem like it doesn't have a whole lot of 
play. But I think when we're looking at love, we're looking at the hope-bringing love of Christ in this Christmas season, in this time of waiting, I think we have to realize what is happening in our culture, what's also happening in the culture of our biblical text. Christmas, Advent, is an immediate pushback against our cultural materialism. I heard it said by Donna Shaper, um, she's at a church in Memorial Baptist Church in New York City, that the spiritual and material have come together in a child, a human, one such as us, with a pancreas, with knees, with hips, and an unwed mother. So this morning we're choosing to push back against the Christmas that we're handed by advertisements and Black Friday deals. We're choosing to acknowledge that our coming together to celebrate Christmas is in direct opposition of the world's priorities. So that's what we get to do this morning. That's what we get to gather together and do. Is in the midst of the craziness of this holiday season, we get to say, in that, we put our hope and we put our trust in the love of Christ. This morning, we're standing in a season of waiting. Just like the Israelites who had been called to acknowledge and live in the midst of numerous cultural changes, Battling for their attention, we await and anticipate the coming of a Savior. We're going to be in the book of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 1. And we run into the Israelites in the Gospels, smack dab in the middle of this time of waiting. We'll talk a little bit about the history in just a moment, but we meet the Israelite people. We meet Jesus' family. We meet his extended family, in the middle of a season of waiting. Prior to Jesus' birth, we hear about a prophet, Jesus' cousin, who, if I accidentally refer to to John the Baptist as J-Bap, those are the same person. I had a seminary professor who that's how he always wrote it on the board, and it stuck in my head. So if I say J-Bap, I'm talking about John the Baptist. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure that was clear. Uh, But we meet the Israelites in the midst of this period of waiting. You can read the story in Luke 1 where we see John the Baptist's background. But our text this morning is a celebration. It's a poetic response from his father, Zechariah. So we're going to turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 68 through 75. But before we do, let's pray together one more time. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together as a church to push back against the priorities that are placed in front of us each year. And God, I pray this morning that we would place our focus and our full attention on you in your desire to reveal your love to us and that we would focus our whole hearts on that today. God, speak to us this morning in your name. Amen. Luke 1, 68-75 says this, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown us the mercy promised to our ancestors. The oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us, that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness 
and righteousness for him all of our days. In our text this morning, Zechariah is telling the story of a delivered people. The promised people of God are waiting on a Savior. They're waiting on the hope that had been promised to them by all of the prophets in the Old Testament. We hear about that testimony in Isaiah on multiple occasions. That the Savior is the hope of the world. And at the time that the Gospels were being written, and long before then, the Israelites had been standing in the midst of this exhausting time of waiting. Waiting on that hope to show up. This period is known as the intertestamental period. We want to get all historical and nerdy. So if you guys are okay with that, we're going to get a little nerdy for a second. So the intertestamental period, it lasted (coughs) from the prophet Malachi's time in about 400 BC up until Jesus showed up on the scene. A lot of people will call that like the preaching of John the Baptist or Jabez. So much took place over that span of 400 years. At the beginning of this period, Judah was under Persian rule. They were allowed to travel back to the homeland. They went back to Judah. Things were good. Then after that, they were conquered by the Greeks, and Alexander took over in that time period, and he ruled Judea up until about 164 B.C., Um, The Greeks greatly influenced the culture. They changed a lot of things. It's why the New Testament was written in Greek. It remained an influence well after the nations took over. After this chapter of Greek rule, other rulers rose up, and we run into Roman rule over the course of the 63 BC. That's when that is. So, they're conquered. They're removing any independence from Judah, and all of the Israelites are basically assimilated into Roman culture in a really interesting way. So throughout these 400 years, we have this intertestamental period where the Jews, the Israelites, are constantly under rule of someone that's not their savior that they had been promised. They're in this period of hopeless waiting. They know that something's been promised, but they're waiting on what it is. During the intertestamental period, during this time, the Israelites were under the thumb of another ruler at every turn. They were separated and at times away from their homeland. And God was seemingly silent. Some historians would call this like the silent years, where it didn't seem like anything was being written. It's kind of that gap in between the Old and New Testament. The Israelites walked through oppressive rulers and must have felt like their God had deserted them. Maybe they felt like the same God who delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians didn't care anymore. Or they felt like the God who had led them through Jericho wasn't, didn't, didn't matter that he would tear down any more walls for them. Or they felt like the God who sees them in the story, just like Hagar was seen by God, didn't see them any longer. But the Israelites were in this hopeless period. They were looking back on God's promise to deliver them with hopeful longing expectation. Throughout the season of preparation, the people were desperate for a savior. They've been longing for someone to put their hope in. I think I would like to, when I'm reading passages like this one, when I'm trying to put flesh to the biblical context that we read, 
I like to kind of get some kind of a mental image. It helps me. I think I'm super visual. I studied graphic design and art and video and all that stuff in school. And so I like to see some kind of video example so I know what to think about. A few years back, there was a Batman movie, the third Batman movie that came out, directed by Christopher Nolan. It was like five, six years ago. And I loved Batman growing up. When I was little, all I did was play with Legos and Batman toys. That was it. Nothing else really mattered. I guess the trampoline, too. But those three things, Legos, Batman toys, trampoline, that was my life. And so the fact that these Batman movies were coming out was so exciting to me because I got to see my childhood hero show up on the big screen. And so we're watching this movie where Batman is up against his biggest foe. I think I have a picture of Batman. Yeah, so we have Batman versus Bane is his name. And we're watching this scene, and it's the classic superhero scene. Batman goes down, he descends into this dark tunnel, he's under the subway system. He knows where all of the bad guys are hanging out. He's making his way that direction. And you just know, it's a Batman movie. He's about to sneak up on everybody and win. It's exactly what you expect. It's the best. Batman works his way, he knocks out all the bad guys, and then we have that big expected boss fight between Batman and the villain. And it's going just like you expected. Batman's about to win. Things are looking good. And then all of a sudden, the tables turn. I think I have a picture of kind of how that concludes. Yeah, there's our fight scene. Batman versus Bane. It's looking good. Not looking great for Batman. And then this last picture, this is how it turns out. We see Batman, our hero, is just broken. He's defeated by Bane. And the seven-year-old me, this was five years ago when I watched this movie, the seven-year-old me was standing up inside of the movie theater screaming, No! I couldn't handle it. Batman was defeated. What am I supposed to do? don't have a good concept of time realizing that there's a good bit of movie left. So I'm not going to fill in the gaps, but it's good. It's worth the watch if you haven't seen it. But we find this hopeless moment and that hopelessness that I felt just longing to see this savior that I wanted to come and defend Gotham City was lost. And that is what the Israelites are feeling in this intertestamental period. That their savior that they've been hoping for is gone. He's not there yet. So with that in mind... With that visual, a hopeless Israel, longing for a Savior. Can we read our text one more time together this morning? Luke 1, verse 68 through 75. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness Before him all of our days. In the midst of hopelessness, Zechariah writes this poetic response. You may be wondering, Joel, 
Why is any of this important as we talk about love in the second week of Advent? The second week of this Christmas season. You might be asking that question. And I would respond to you, that's a great question. I really don't know. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're talking about this because I think oftentimes when we look at the Christmas story, when we look at this biblical narrative, we do so because we know the end of the story. We know what happens throughout the rest of our New Testament, throughout the rest of our scripture, and we forget about the cultural context that shows just how desperate the Israelite people were for their Savior. We walk into the Christmas story, we walk into a period of longing for deliverance. God's people deeply desired that their Savior would come just as they promised. And it's not something that we can miss when we read the story. We read scripture void of this context. We lose the life. We lose the flesh. We lose the, the visceral, the real part of scripture that walks with us in daily life when we read it void of context. And Zechariah's response to knowing God's promise that a Savior would be delivered shows the importance of that. We have to understand the longing world that Jesus walked into. Because that longing so closely resembles each one of our stories. We've each walked through this hopeless period of time where we just desperately desire that God would show up. Corey talked about that last week. Our center was our focus was on hope, the hope of Christ. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that hope, in the midst of that longing, in the midst of that desperation, God steps in. And what is God's response in that waiting period? Love. That's why we look at love this week. Because God's response to our waiting and our longing and our deep desire to see a Savior show up is love. It's true. We are at a huge advantage every single year when we read the Christmas story. We read about Mary and Joseph and how Gabriel promises that they will be parents of a child called Emmanuel, God with us. We read about the men that travel from the east bringing prophetic gifts with them. Gifts of gold which show that a king has been born. Gifts of myrrh that show that it's God among his people, that God has descended among his people, and gifts of frankincense that prophesy that his death will make a way for all of us to find God. We get to read about that story, and we read about the message of how Christ's coming shows up amongst lowly shepherds watching their flocks at night. And why do we discuss this each year around this time? Because we can read, experience, and celebrate How the love of Christ shows up even in the darkest of places. How Christ's love invades hopelessness. How he invades hopeless circumstances. And when it seems like you'll never hear from God again, you're always going to be under the thumb of someone else. God still shows up. And that's how Jesus works throughout the gospel narratives. That's how Jesus continually shows up among his people. The Jesus that we meet in the New Testament Probably nothing like the Messiah that the Israelites thought they were getting, which is an interesting fact here. It would be said that the Israelites probably thought that the deliverer that they would have been promised was going to be a Caesar-like figure. 
a new war general, a new person to come and right the wrongs, to just turn over the establishment and make everything right, to make the Israelites the rulers of all people. And that's probably what they thought. But things didn't show up that way. Instead, Jesus wasn't placed in a palace guarded by soldiers. He was laid in a manger guarded by cattle, shepherds. He was unassuming, unexpected, and more than anything else, this Savior was the embodiment of love. The Savior that they had been promised was not what they expected, but he was a whole, whole lot more than that. 1 John 4.16 says that we've known and believe the love that God has for us. That God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. We wait on the love of Christ this season because Christ's love brings life. We've read the end of the story. We know that Christ lived a sinless life. He died a death that we all deserve, rose again, defeating death once and for all. We all know that. And John 15, 13 says that no one, there's no greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And we have that manifestation, we have that example, we have that accomplishment through Christ. That the greatest love is shown by his sacrifice, his sacrificial love on our behalf. The lowly child that was born is love. The love that the people of Israel didn't realize they were waiting on showed up in those hopeless circumstances. When they expected Caesar, they were given a real savior. When the people were expecting a ruling king who would conquer anyone that stood between him and them getting the power they thought they deserved, Jesus came to serve and to give his life up for those he loved. As I was preparing the sermon... I had good advice when I was in school. At least I, I thought it was good advice. It might, you might think differently. <laughs> but uh, I thought it was good advice when I was preparing, learning to prepare a sermon. Um, and one of my mentors said, when you're reading through the biblical text that you're going to preach, ask questions of it. Be willing to look at it and say, what's the big idea? What are each of the characters thinking? What does, how does this affect all, everyone around you? But the question that keeps kept coming back to and kept being the refrain that I couldn't get away from as I was reading through Scripture and trying to prepare this sermon was where does Christ's love show up in the Christmas story? And really, I thought I needed to find a complex answer. But the answer is pretty simple. Christ's love shows up in all of it. It shows up in the entirety of the story. It shows up over and over again. It shows up in how Jesus was cared for by his parents It shows up in God's fulfillment of prophecy. It shows up in the very person of Jesus. It shows up in the lives of the people that traveled to meet him. It shows up in how we have the privilege to read the entire story. And church, we cannot forget, we cannot miss that point, that Christ's love brings life. But in this time of waiting, we first look to the love of Christ. It is our best and only guide for what true love looks like. Secondly, one more point that I think we're going to kind of sit on. And that Christ's love 
compels us and commands us to do something with it. It doesn't just stop at that moment of Christ coming, Christ living a sinless life, and Christ dying. But it calls us into something as followers of him. That passage in John that I read, John um, chapter 15, where I talked about how Christ gave his life up. Well, the verse that precedes it is a command to the apostles, the command to those that were closest to Christ, that reads like this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And church, we stand in the middle of this season of waiting, waiting, looks a lot like it looked for the Israelites. But the simple fact that we can gather together and worship each week is something that we can celebrate. And as we understand Christ's love, we then understand what we've been commanded to be. We are called to love one another as Christ loved his church. It's not a short-term, quick love that just happens and is done, but it's a continued love. Are you guys okay to get nerdy with me one more time? Is that okay? Our students, on Sunday mornings, we have been walking through several different books of the Bible. Um, We've been looking at Ephesians for a while. We're going to go to the Old Testament um, after the the holidays. But in part of that, we have what I've affectionately titled the big theological word of the day. And sometimes the big theological word of the day is like some big definition or something. And sometimes it's like the big Greek word of the day. And then we'll talk through like, A word that was written in Greek, has a lot of cool context. And in this verse, we get to do that as a church. We get to have our big Greek word of the day. Are you guys excited? Anybody? Anybody excited? No? Cool. I didn't think you would. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Okay, so this verse, John 15, 12, it has a lot of fun Greek language. I think I've got it to show up, Brad. Yeah. So our big Greek word of the day, on what would be my right, we have it written in Greek. Agapete. On the left, we have it kind of transliterated. You guys have probably heard a word very, very similar to this one. Anybody heard the word agape, meaning love? Greek, yeah. So this is a certain form of that word. What's so cool about this, what's so cool about the Greek language, is that ending can change everything about the rest of the word. Change how it's pronounced, not necessarily pronounced, change how it's interpreted, how we define the definition. And in this word... Or in this version, Jesus uses a really fascinating version of this word. So the verb used for love here is significant. And that his love for the disciples and what he calls the disciples to is in a present continued sense. Where when he says agape later in the verse, it's in like the past tense, like completed action. Because he loved his disciples. But in this present completed tense, I think I have some stuff written about what it looks like. Maybe. I might not. Okay. (laughs) The Greeks use the present tense to express this kind of continued action. An action that unfolds or develops. An aorist tense, which is just agape in its normal form, shows completed action. It tells you something happened. That Christ loved. That Christ does love. It's like a picture. But this word that we have here, this tense... Is like a video. It's like an unfolding love. So when Christ calls the disciples to love one another, he doesn't call them to do this passive act of love that happens once and is done. He calls them into a continued love that unfolds and grows and keeps moving. 
It's a continued present action. That is, we're called to love one another. We're called to do so continually. We're called to grow into that love. The disciples were commanded to a continued love. So church, just like the disciples, were called to continue loving one another in the same way that Jesus loved his church. So let that be our agape that we hold on to. This love for one another that continues, that abides, that grows. Now this could look a million different ways. It shows up in so many different ways. It looks like taking meals to a homeless community in Fort Worth often. It looks like filling an angel tree or filling a, a box for Samaritan's purse. It looks like serving your community when people are in need. It looks like baked, making baked goods for people in our community that can't make it to church. It shows up in so many ways. This continued love is something that we continue to abide in. And we as a church have the opportunity, and we do this on a weekly basis. You show this love to one another. But that is our challenge as we sit in this Christmas season that we would continue to love one another. Maybe it's showing love to how you care for junior high, high school, or elementary school students when you teach each week. We read about Jesus coming and bringing light into the darkest darkness. We can't walk away unmoved. We've been called to bring love into a world that is longing for something. And this love is abiding and continual, and it's growing. And we, church, have the chance to take it with us. I think... I love whenever I'm reading a text like this one, like I mentioned before, I love to find some kind of something to grab onto. And when Karen and I first moved south from Oklahoma, um, I was starting school and I had orientation. And we were introduced to this guy at the seminary, <clears throat> excuse me, named Jimmy Dorrell. And if you've spent any time in Waco, you might have heard of Jimmy or the organization that he's a part of, but it's an organization called Mission Waco. And I think as I was reading through this text and what abiding love looks like, I think it looks a lot like how Jimmy and his wife Janet have loved their community. For Jimmy and Janet Dorrell in Waco, it looked like finding ways to empower members of the community that couldn't care for themselves. In 1978, Jimmy and Janet Dorrell bought a deteriorating house in the middle of a worn-down neighborhood in North Waco, Texas. Based on their sense of vocational call, they lived among the poor and brought the good news through relationships. They began offering children and teens clubs that met with people each and every week. They met neighbors and provided assistance to those in the struggling community. The neighbor high school kids needed a place to stay, so the Dorals built a basketball court in their backyard so they had somewhere to hang out. They were constantly doing things to lean into that community. They started an alcohol and drug rehabilitation center. And in 1991, after years of informal neighborhood ministry, the Dorals created Cross-Cultural Experiences Incorporated, which is a nonprofit Christian organization designed to help students leave the comfort of their own experiences and experience what life looks like outside of what they know. And through that, they had the opportunity to start an organization called Mission Waco. Instead of this, Jimmy said, Mission Waco didn't have a master plan, but we took the natural next steps based on our relationships with people in the community. We believe that change starts with friendship and empowerment. And they did the long work of continuing to love their community. From 1978 on until now, they've been impacting that area in major ways. 
And I think as we've been called as members of the church to continue and to abide in love, to be this video picture of love, that's the kind of love that we're called to. That we wait on the love of Christ, and when we find it, we are called to live into it. To work towards the long game. Love is active, and it continues to bring light to the darkness. This season, as many of you already have in this room, and already are doing, continue to bring light into the darkness. Take light with you as you go. God with us, Emmanuel, brings hope and he brings love into the darkest of places. And we are commanded, as a body of believers, to do the same. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The love that we find in this Christmas season is not a love without context. It's not a love that is just thrown out and given back. It's a love that we continue in. It's a love that we abide in. God didn't show up in the Gospels in a time where Israel was empowered and in charge. But love brings life and breathes life into the darkest of places. And when we feel like we've been waiting too long, it's like all hope is lost. We're commanded to do the same. So as we conclude this morning, for many of us, we focus only on all of the wonder of the season. We focus on the lights, we focus on the gifts, we focus on whatever the wreath is going to be outside of our house. We focus on how many times we hear All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, and it's only, it's a very limited number at this point for me. But we focus on those things. It seems that the joy promised from Hallmark movies and Coca-Cola commercials just isn't ever going to really show up, and we feel like we're in the midst of that hopeless situation that the Israelites were feeling. We may be tired, heartbroken, estranged from loved ones, longing for something more, or settling in something that's a lot less than what we thought we would get. Maybe we're isolated, lonely, doubting, numb, calloused, or hurting. If that's you in this season, know this above all else, that God is love, and his love invades even the darkest and most hopeless of places. Just like the prayer of Zechariah we read a few minutes ago, a Savior is promised and that Savior shows up. The same Savior, God with us, still shows up. So church, in this Christmas season, may we desire that hope, love, joy, and peace of Christ dwell among us, every one of us. May this be our continued prayer this season.